Obviously, I'm prone to depression. A certain bleak attitude about the world. But I know I can handle it. Your kids, though. It's like when they're little and they get sick. You'd give anything in the world to trade places with them so they don't have to suffer. And then they think you're the cause of it. Welcome to Tell Me About Your Father's ongoing look at The Sopranos. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And Erin, we have something to tell our listeners. We have a surprise for them, right? I love surprises, and you will too, because as we were putting these hours together for you, we realized that we had so much to say. You had so much to say. The world has so much to say. And Alan and Matt have the most to say yet about the incredible ending, the last episode of the series Made in America. But today we're looking at episodes 6B, or at least the first eight. Um, Wait a minute. How do we put that into non-HBO jargon for our listeners? We are recapping on this episode the first eight episodes of season, quote, 6B. Thanks, HBO, because... We like to call it season seven, even though it's only nine episodes. And guys, we are just going to focus on the first eight of those nine. But bear with us. It's very important. And it's going to connect all the dots till we get to the end. In other words, thanks for, if you're still listening, you're probably my mom. <laughs> And we just want to thank my mom and our listeners for tuning in. Well, Busy, the good news is that we're actually dropping our part four all at once today. So people are going to get three episodes today. We promise not to come back next week or in two weeks with another Sopranos theme. So those of you that, you know, want to go to the end with us, which we encourage... You'll have that opportunity today because we're going to drop all three episodes. Yes, it's your lucky day, Sopranos fans. We're giving you three episodes. You only asked for none, but we are here to deliver seven, okay? You asked for zero and we're giving you seven. It's Matt Zoller Seitz's favorite number, he told us. And, you know, it's a whole thing. And is David Chase's favorite number because the number seven is significant on the Sopranos as well here. Let's get to it. So we open with a fascinating episode called Soprano Home Movies, season seven, episode one. Tony and Carmela go to Janice and Bobby's summer home, summer rental. Janice and Tony have been squabbling forever, but you see yeah. them really bringing out the worst in each other. And it's funny because the last episode we talked about how Tony is not really changing. Like Tony is, he didn't really have a like, I'm going to be a different man after almost dying. We said it in the first episode of this series, like Melfi leads Tony to water and therapy and you think he's going to jump in the pool and swim, but he like runs away. <laughs> yeah. 
every year and tells her to fuck off. So very early on in this episode, Janice tells Tony that he's really changed since the shooting. She just beating him. Or I feel like that's what he thought, you know, that she was just messing with him because he knows he has. Well, yeah, it is funny. Like she says it and then he's like, how have I changed? He doesn't like the implication that like Tony Soprano has been softened by any of this. So Janice and Bobby, who are there with baby Nika, their daughter and their nanny, Janice and Bobby and Carmela and Tony get wasted like they start drinking in the afternoon and they're just going and they're having a great time and Carmela sings karaoke Janice is getting more and more drunk and everybody is and they're playing Monopoly and Janice tells a story about their dad Johnny boy in which he shot his gun through Olivia's beehive hairdo Um, right and this is actually a scene that appears in uh, the Mini Saints of Newark as well, that actual scene of him shooting the gun through the hair. But let's play a clip of how Tony reacts when Janice tells this story. That never even happened. And anyway, it's not for public consumption. What? Oh my God, what? They're driving back from Manhattan with Uncle Junior and Skumar. Oh, what was her name, Tony? Your ass. But that's how we heard the story through her. Rosemary. And anyway, my father's driving and she's ragging on his ass. You know how she'd get. He'd been drinking, I guess. And he takes out his gun. Oh my God. Boom! Holy shit. Fucking bullet went right through her beehive hairdo. I can't believe you never told me that story. Yeah, what's the big deal? Because it makes us look like a fucking dysfunctional family. Jesus Christ. My turn. And don't you ever tell the kids that about their grandfather. No, of course not. So did you guys look at her hair? Was it powder burns? She had a bob the next day. (laughs) It makes us look like a dysfunctional family. It's very true to life, like... How long have Carmela and Tony been married? Bobby and Janice have not been married for long, but the fact that Tony is self-conscious about what it makes their family look like is interesting to me. Yeah, the theme of Remember When that we opened this entire series with is when Tony is reminiscing about the good times that he's, he wants to instill in, in the memories of his children. And by the end of the series and this season, we are seeing him freaking out about memories. He cannot reconcile now, probably because he's been in therapy so long, the truth, what the truth was of his childhood. And now to look at it through Janice's memory that she thinks is funny, that everybody thinks is funny, suddenly like shooting a live bullet through his mother's hair missing her head is not funny to him it's true he starts to become increasingly disgusted i think with where he comes from and who he is not that he does anything about it but there seems to be like the most like crystallized view of himself in this stretch of episodes well later he'll say the line to polly 
remember when is the lowest form of conversation. That's right. Reminiscing. Stop talking about it. But on this episode, Janice, shortly after the bullet in the beehive story is told, Tony will not stop making like sexual jokes about what a slut, quote unquote, Janice was in high school. And he keeps making all these innuendos. And Bobby is getting increasingly uncomfortable and like telling him to knock it off. And Janice is egging Tony on. And they're doing their usual bullshit with each other. And Bobby just loses it and clocks Tony in the face. And they're fighting and Carm and Janice are screaming and break it up. And then James Gandolfini for like maybe a minute or at least goes by where he has like a little Monopoly apartment building stuck to his face while he's talking, which Edie Falco then like brushes off eventually. But uh, you see the jealousy that Tony has and the resentment that Tony has for Bobby Prior to this fist fight, Tony and Bobby take the boat out and Bobby admits to him that he's never, quote, made his bones or meaning killed someone. And he's like, my Bobby, whose dad was also a wise guy, my pops didn't want it for me. And as we'll find out later in this season, Tony's own father had him make his bones, quote unquote, when he was only 22. And later in this episode, as a way to be cruel to Bobby and get back at him for punching him. They're off in Montreal doing some quick business. And Tony volunteers Bobby as a hitman to kill someone. And Bobby's forced to kill this guy. And it's a really disturbing scene. And it's not a clean hit. And what's extra cruel about making this guy who's not a killer by nature, as Tony likes to call it, he makes him kill somebody on his father's home turf, which is Canada. Oh, Bobby's family didn't come on Ellis Island, which is so important to American Italians. Bobby is telling this story about emigrating to Canada, like his father came over state lines. And then he basically qualifies it by saying in the next line, but I think we should build a wall. And it was shocking rewatching it because I'm like thinking to myself, Did the Sopranos predict Trump's presidency? Totally. It's interesting, all of the pieces, especially what we talked about in the last episode with like the new generation finding the Sopranos and the fact that it's set during the Bush era. I think Matt in one of his clips from the last episode is like David Chase was warning us about everything that was to come and we just didn't listen. Yeah. Stage five is the next episode in which Johnny Zach dies, um, which is why it's called stage five. He dies of cancer in prison while his daughters sit at his bedside and his wife, Jenny. It's very sad. And as he's dying, he calls out for his mother. Tony is, meanwhile incredibly upset because Chrissy's movie that he did Chrissy produce it or co-write it he's been working on it since season one there's always been this subplot with him where he's trying to get this horror movie about the mob made so Christopher can only write what he knows and so Christopher obviously still believes that Tony and Adriana had sex years previously because that becomes a plot point in this movie that the mob boss hooks up with the guy's girl. And we see Tony in the theater having a very different reaction um, to 
the plot and this cheesy horror film that everybody's laughing at. And you can see him kind of stewing. Cleaver, we should say, is a horror movie about a Frankenstein together gangster that like comes back from the dead and takes revenge on everyone who's wronged him. With a meat With cleaver. a meat cleaver. And so this mob boss, overweight guy, I think who's played by Daniel Baldwin and in the Cleaver universe. So Tony's in the theater and, you know, we see their faces lit up by the screen and everyone's laughing and Tony's realizing, fuck, am I the inspiration for this character? And this guy gets offed in the movie. Does that mean that Christopher wants to kill me? (laughs) Right. So it is wish fulfillment. But it's also a stupid horror movie. And yet, Tony has this reaction in therapy about it. This is the image of me he leaves to the world. Remember when he was born, I would hold him in my arms. An adorable kid, too. Big eyes. You always talk about him more like a son. In some ways, he was. Especially after his dad died. He was little. I used to give him rides. I'd put him in a basket of a butcher bike and pedal him around. Back when Satriales made deliveries. I reminded him of that recently. He didn't remember. But you do. We had fun. All those memories are for what? All I am to him is some asshole bully. You're hurt. His dad, Dickie, was like my me to him. A mentor. Yeah, but more than that. A friend, a fucking guy you could look up to. And the hope is that you pass that shit down, the respect and the love. And all I did for this fucking kid, and he fucking hates me so much. I'm sure on some level he loves you too. Wow. Tony is crying in this scene. He is so hurt as Melfi gets him to admit. Yeah. And it's strange because... We've never seen him cry before, not that I can remember. And we know from the first half of season six, he has that monologue with AJ where he says, you make me want to cry. But he doesn't cry. He can't cry when it comes to his own son, his bio Yeah, he can't cry. He can't really cry at all. James Candelfini is just so good at playing his rage and his sensitivity and also his repression. His eyes well up, but he, as an actor, has such control over his emotions. It's incredible. Like, just the scene and so many on the whole series, but it struck me in season seven because you see it in other places his ability to go just to the brink of like an emotional breakdown and then stop himself. It's really profound. But, you know, it wouldn't be a Tony Melfi session if there wasn't a tiny bit of comedy in here. He tells Melfi that she should take Cleaver home. There's a DVD of Cleaver on the coffee table between them and Melfi's office that if she doesn't believe him, that this character is clearly based on him. She should just take it home and watch it herself. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. I was like, wait, that's really funny. That Tony, he is like a little boy. He bought in the DVD for her. I think to be like, see, I need you to watch this so you can agree with me. Yeah, that I am a heartless killer who slept with my nephew's uh, girlfriend. 
it's so Tony to want to brag about the very thing. I think he wants Malfi to watch watch it and be like, this character is based on me, babe. But then another part would be like, and I'm outraged that he's played by Daniel Baldwin in a bathrobe who's, you know, killed in the movie and looks like an idiot and fucks the guy's girlfriend. Take this movie home and watch it so you can agree with me that Chrissy has done me dirty by portraying me this way. I want to know what you think, Dr. Malfi. I want you to agree with me. And she opens, so we're going to open back up with them. And she says, it's not about what I think, it's about what you think. I think he fucking despises me. It's pretty obvious. Wants to see me dead. Without invalidating your feelings, is it possible that on some level you're reading into all this? I've been coming here for years. I know too much about this subconscious now. Melfi very gingerly suggests to Tony that maybe he's being a little sensitive. Mm. And then you don't think I know about the subconscious. So quickly, just super quickly, we're not going to play the dialogue, but there is an interesting, there's the character of Little Carmine, who's the producer of Cleaver. Mm -hmm. He is one of the funniest characters on The Sopranos because everything is malapropism. He misunderstands things. He misstates things. There's a scene after the Cleaver um, premiere where he's talking to his teenage daughter who's like, wow, dad, I loved the juxtaposition between, you know, the violent scene in this and then the cross in the background. And he's like, well, honey, that's just what it is. The sacred and the propane. So little Carmine is a hilarious dum-dum, but he's also gives Tony kind of a very, I think, powerful and important speech. Little Carmine's father, who is dead, was the boss of the New York family. And things are getting out of control with Phil Leotardo. Like, we have to make this end. And a way to do it, to to quell the violence and stop the mayhem, would be if you stepped up and you were boss of the New York family. So Little Carmine is in the, the movie business. He's a producer. And Little Carmine is basically like, I made a decision not to do this so that I could be happy. And I'd rather be happy than be boss. Yeah, he tells Tony about a dream he had about his Mm -hmm. father. And it's just this parable about like, he realizes that his father is 100 years old. And in the dream, he's still trying to serve his father and live his life for his dad. And he realizes that he doesn't want the life. Like, what's the point with all that stress? And they're having this conversation at a country club. He's wearing like, he's just gone golfing. And Tony is just disgusted and can't relate. But again, you see James Gandolfini, like in his eyes, Tony's kind of taking this in as if for the first time, like just even the idea that you wouldn't want the life unless you were in trouble with the FBI or something totally. like that. And and also the concept of someone being like, pleasing my father is futile. Like in it, well, being little Carmine, he describes, I think that he means to say a beautiful box, but he describes it as a mellifulous <laughs> box, like beautiful paper and ribbons, a mellifulous box. He says something like, you know, my father is a hundred in the dream and I give him this mellifulous box and it's empty. And he says, come back in a hundred more years. And he's like, my dad's in the dream. He's wearing a crown, like a paper crown, like the Burger King kids wear. So the futility of trying to 
fulfill the wishes of a long deceased fake prophet. Who prays a king who's wearing a paper oh. crown. <laughs> so next we're going into remember when. And I think it makes a lot of sense as to why we see Tony explode with rage at reminiscing at this point, given the stretch of episodes that we just recap. We also mm-hmm. see finally Tony talking about, quote, making his bones and why he was so cruel to Bobby, making Bobby do that hit on home movies two episodes prior. We learned that the Johnny boy, his dad, have had him kill the bookie Willie overall um, in 1982, <laughs> um, a week before Meadow was born. So the FBI, you know, what, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, is digging up the scene, the the location where Tony at age 22 killed Willie overall. And Polly and him get spooked and are like, we got to go on the run in case like they trace us to this murder. So they decide to go hide out and, you know, everything's changed. Where are they going? Like Virginia or something? When they're driving, Polly sees the sign for Chevy Chase and he goes, what ever happened to that guy? But... They're driving and they're like, let's go to that hotel that had the great quarter like massage beds and where we met the hillbilly whores and we'll order some steaks and, you know, share a bottle of scotch and they get to this hotel and it's not there anymore. They're just disappointed. And Tony screams at Polly in front of a group of like cute girls because Polly is doing what Polly does, which is telling stories about himself. Tony's getting angrier and angrier and screams at him. Remember when is the lowest form of conversation. Later in that episode, Tony goes out onto his balcony in the hotel and he can see into Polly's room. And he can see that Polly is sitting on the edge of his bed laughing really hard in an episode of Three's Company. And there's so many instances of Polly showing that he's a bit of a dummy and kind of tactless and is a total narcissist and never says the right things and tony looks into that scene and is not like ah oh, there's polly thinking three's company is hilarious he is disgusted by that he looks at him through the window with contempt like realizing what a bunch of jerk offs his circle is like he just doesn't have and he uses that word a lot therapy is a jerk off you're a jerk off why don't i just go jerk off It's just all disappointing. Yes, and also it's interesting. I always forget watching The Sopranos how much older Polly is supposed to be than Tony. Like Polly worked for Johnny Boy before Mm -hmm. he died. So I wonder if Tony wishes that he had more of a father figure in Polly and didn't have this like dumbass in his presence. You know, I remember you around that time. When I was bad, my dad used to threaten me he was going to get Uncle Paulie to come get me. <laughs> Fucking Johnny boy, eh? He loved you, my friend. I remember the night you were born. Only time I ever saw him cry. <laughs> it's funny, you know, I never knew where I stood with him. Like he didn't believe in me or something. Fucking kid. He trusted you enough to give you the Willie overall thing. And you were what? 24? 22. So there you go then. 24? No, I was actually younger. I was 22. It's interesting that Tony reveals that he doesn't know where he stood with his father. I don't think we've heard that before. No, we haven't. Like, what did he think of me? We've only ever heard Tony say he thought his dad was 
amazing and a legend and whatever. Yeah, it's fascinating. He hasn't allowed AJ to get involved in the life, even though he kind of flirts with it because he's sussed out that AJ is too sensitive, but he desperately wants him to have that same work ethic. He makes him work at the construction site, yeah. right? But it just never quite works out. Yeah, I think Tony both doesn't want AJ to try to murder Uncle June. But I think Tony is revolted by his son's softness and by his son's privilege. Because he's reminded that AJ is now 21. And he was 22 when his dad, like, made him kill somebody, basically, to prove himself. And so I think he just both resents his son and his dad in this moment even more. 100%. The next episode is a big episode for season seven. It's called Chasing It. We see the effect, so to speak, of Vito, the second to the last episode of season six, is an episode called Cold Stones where Vito is killed and we see his little boy. I mean, we talk about how sad it is to see his little boy. He's reading the newspaper to his sister and he's realizing that his dad was killed and that also that his dad was gay. We flash forward to see that Vito Jr. is now in eighth grade or a freshman in high school and he's goth. He has um, black nail polish and black lipstick and has gotten the like a hot topic makeover and everyone is very concerned about Vito Jr. He's acting out at school. His mother is very worried. His mother is actually played by Lorraine Bracco's sister, Elizabeth Bracco. She goes to Tony and exposes the lie and promise of no matter what happens, Tony will take care of your family if your husband gets off. Like you'll be taken care of. She asked Tony to give her $100,000 to relocate her kids to Maine because her son is struggling so much and getting in so much trouble. And Tony is kind of like, I'll see what I can do. He doesn't want to pay six figures to get rid of Vito's kid. He doesn't want to pay. He says that he'll talk to Vito's kid, but then he also is like, why doesn't Phil Leotardo talk to him? Vito and and his mother don't know that Phil is the one who killed their father slash husband. But Tony also suggests that like this should be something that comes from Phil, like giving this this young man a speaking to because Vito's wife is his like second cousin or something. And even Vito's wife is like, uh, we're second cousins. Like, why would he talk to him? <laughs> but sure enough, Phil and Vito Jr. go out for milkshakes. And we'll play a little bit of this dialogue. Phil has some words for Vito. What the hell's wrong with you? Look like a Puerto Rican whore. Make me sick. So? What's it got to do with you? Listen, Pally. You need to be rebellious. I raise kids. I get it. For you. You want to smack, too? You ever think what this is doing to your mother? What she's been through? How you're upsetting her? She's just embarrassed. She cries for you. I'm going to say this because you're old enough to understand. Your family's had enough shame. You should set things right. You understand me? No. Jesus Christ, be a man. Be the kind of man she needs, strong, masculine. But the kid that plays Vito Jr., he's just numb. Like, he he's snotty and snide with Phil in that scene, but, like, 
There's a lot of sadness in his eyes too. It's just, it gets worse from here. So after that in inspiring speech from cousin Phil to be a man and stop shaming his family. Literally killed his dad. Not that he knows exactly. it, but. Tony then tries to give Vito Jr. a pep talk and this is how that goes. But this trouble you're causing, I'm very disappointed because you, you always were a good kid. You don't even know me. What is that supposed to mean? Sometimes you call me Carlo Jr. All I know is I couldn't shut your dad up about what a good kid you were. We were friends, you know. But buddies? Well, you're being funny. That's good. Because I'm sure you miss him. A lot. Whatever he was. And now I'm going to say some things. You're going to look at me. I'm not moving to fucking Maine! You think anybody wants that? You know how much that's going to cost? Your mother? Whatever. Listen to me, okay? I'm not some fucking social worker. Now, you knock this weird shit off, or I'm gonna introduce you to a play class window. Somebody should have told my dad to knock off the weird shit. You go about in pity for yourself. What about your mother? What about what she's been through? What am I supposed to do about it? Look, your dad's gone, okay? You're the man of the house now. Start fucking acting like it. You get me? Great job, Tony. Yeah, it's so sad. What am I supposed to do about it? Again, that little, the little boy that plays him, it's like perfect dead expression. He's heartbroken and, and angry. Not Pitying Yourself is another sort of greatest hits of Tony Soprano. And the fact that he feels like it's appropriate to tell a 12-year-old to 13-year-old little boy that he needs to suck it up and stop feeling sorry for himself that his dad was murdered is a window into the brutality and the, the heartlessness of machoism in Tony's world. Simultaneously, we also see that Tony, you know, Tony's always gambled all of the Sopranos, but you don't really see him being bad at gambling or losing significant amounts of money gambling until this episode. And Tony is like chasing the dragon, like he keeps losing money. And then he tries to take the money that was like, intended for Carm's house or use the money like for Carmela's, you know, real estate projects to like, could he use that to put towards gambling? And Carm's like, no. And then Tony makes a bet on like an Eagles game or something. And he ends up losing a lot of money and he explodes at Carmela basically for bleeding her, him dry. He tells her that she's a bullshit real estate agent, that her career is bullshit that she throws like a figurine at him and it smashes. And he raises his hand to her. It's very violent. And then he screams at her that she can live in a dumpster after he's gone for all he cares. Whoa. So Tony is really reverting back to like season four Tony or season three Tony, where he was really fighting with Carmela about building a future for them and making sure that they have enough money in case something should happen to him. I guess the near-death experience from a year prior just isn't registering. So poor Vito Jr. is still struggling. He is being bullied by boys at school. They're calling him the Matt Damon F slur in the shower. They're like, oh, here comes Vito Jr. Don't drop the soap. And he just locks eyes with these boys who are torturing him and takes a shit on the floor of the shower. And they're like scream, like all the kids like scream and run out of the boys' locker room. And then he steps in the shit. You think it's going to be like a carry scene, you know, where he's just sort of the victim here. 
of all of this taunting. But then it just goes in this hardcore, dark, dark night of the soul place where you're using excrement as a way to fight back. And I mean, the whole thing with Tony freaking out on Carmela um, about money, he's failing to produce through gambling the money that he needs to take care of stupid shit collateral damage like this kid Vito Jr. needs a special school so that he doesn't like kill himself or go off the rails. Tony is so resentful. This was a point of no return for me with Tony is that you know Tony like actually kind of has a change of heart after talking to Vito Jr. and is like I am gonna give the money to his mother to move him away and then gambles that away and loses that so um tony feeling guilty decides that he has a better plan which is that he's for less money he's gonna send Vito jr to like a camp in idaho for like wayward boys they come and get him in the middle of the night while he's asleep he's sleeping in his bed next to his little misfits poster and these men come in and just are like you're you know get up you're coming with us and he's screaming and his sister is screaming and his mom is screaming and it's such an upsetting scene well and it's important to note that that's a dr phil special like this is how we deal with wayward teens in america or especially then we sent them to these like camps where we now know from paris hilton of all people They were full of abuse and corporal punishment and tried to break somebody down as if this is the army, your teenage years. Sexual abuse, starvation, you name it. These places are for our shows and poor Vito Jr. has been sent to one. And I like how they just end it there. You know, like these people come and kidnap him and that's his punishment. And it's Tony's fault in every it's direction. It's Tony's fault in every direction. Yeah. And you never, there's only a few episodes left in the series, but you never hear about Vito Jr. again. Chrissy does have a really amazing throwaway line in this episode. You start to see, I think, the effects of him being a father. He has a, a baby daughter. And it's like him and Bobby and Tony are sitting around a table at Artie Bucco's restaurant. And they're talking about the fact that Vito Jr. shit in the shower. And Tony and Christopher start talking about, you know, that must be so hard for Vito's little sister, who's only nine. This is Tony saying this. And Christopher just looks at him and says, yeah, it's like a pebble in a lake. Even the fish feel it. It actually felt like one of the most sensitive moments that either of these two men or really any adult has expressed sympathy for a child in pain on The Sopranos. That's like direct chase coming through to remind us, you know, of just what these stories are about and its importance. Because the fact that it comes out of Christopher's mouth is, it's ironic. As we've discussed, he doesn't have any you know, self-awareness yeah. at all. So this um, stretch of toxic masculinity is it's we're stretching into the next episode. You know, Vito Jr. is told twice in this this episode to be a man. The next episode is called Walk Like a Man. It's a big one. I would say it, it's like the most tell me about your father of all of the Sopranos episodes. 
Woof. It's true. Let's describe it. First of all, Tony comes downstairs, regular domestic scene. Carmela's in the kitchen. AJ is sitting on the couch. He is so despondent from depression mm -hmm. because he's just gone through this breakup with Blanca, his latest girlfriend who actually works at the construction site. And he's so, so depressed and watching cartoons. And Tony is singing the lyrics from Comfortably Numb. Mm -hmm by Pink Floyd, which is a whole thing in The Sopranos. There's a lot of Pink Floyd music is very important to the show and lyrics, but he's singing the line, when I was a child, I had a fever, which I just thought was so interesting because we'll see that this song plays, um, plays a part in other episodes. Wow. Yeah. And also that reference to um, childhood illness will come up in a second too. Yeah, AJ is despondently depressed. He's had his heart broken. Tony and Carmilla do not know what to do with despondent, depressed AJ. You can see that Tony is afraid for his son. And he suggests he has two friends named Jason, who Matt and Alan refer to as the Jasons in the Soprano sessions. But Tony is like, why don't you go to the Bada Bing with the Jasons? They're having a party and suggest to his son that if he just goes out there and gets a lap dance like that's all he needs to snap out of his his funk and really what happens is you know AJ does start hanging out with the two Jasons who actually fancy themselves to be aspiring wise guys too and AJ watches in horror as they slash and does he help them beat up another kid that owes them money and then pour sulfuric acid on him on his feet uh. He doesn't like it, but he sort of goes along with it. You also see that Christopher is back on the straight and narrow. He's living in a nice McMansion with his wife and they have a baby daughter. And everybody goes over to the Multisanti's house for a barbecue. Christopher is barbecuing and drinking non-alcoholic beer and Tony is giving him shit for that and wondering where Chrissy's been because he hasn't been stopping by the Bada Bing. And Christopher is like very direct with him. He's like, I can't be at the Bada Bing. There's too much booze around. There's too much cocaine there. All the dancers are doing coke. I can't hang out at Cetrielli's because the beer cooler there triggers me. And Tony is just doing his classic shit with him of like, it's because you're weak. You just need to be stronger and get over it. And then, you know, Christopher kind of dings Tony in an amazing way and says, you know, this is something that you should understand as someone who's in therapy. Um, and then sort of describes okay. like, I come from a long line of addiction. My father, Dickie, who you idolized, was a junkie and my mom's a junkie. So what do you want from me? Like, how else could it have been any different from me? I need you to understand that. Like, I can't control it. It's in my DNA. And Tony yeah. doesn't understand that concept of substance abuse being something that is passed down through generations. But he's also sort of, you can see, taken aback at this admission from Chrissy, his father is a junkie. And we certainly don't see him being a junkie in the Many Saints of New York. But, you know, you see Tony kind of respond to like, what? This guy that I idolized was a junkie. Yeah, he doesn't fight back when Christopher says that. He just kind of takes it in. Whereas I think usually he would fight back and maybe even slap him. Like, how dare you say anything like that about your dad? But maybe he's realizing 
the genetic link, you know, with AJ just for a flicker. Mm. And the fact that maybe he didn't know Dickie and certainly Christopher didn't know Dickie. He never knew his dad at all. So just taking in the mythology, mm. how could he know? He really is alone in the world. Yes, that's such a good point. One of the next scenes or later in the episode, you see Tony going to therapy. He's telling Melfi that he's actually tired of therapy, that it's, quote, a jerk off. But therapy is a jerk off, hence your comment earlier about jerk off. And that he's thinking mm -hmm. of quitting. He had come to her office to actually tell her that he's ready to quit. But then he has started to sense that his son is severely depressed and that this isn't just a puppy love breakup. Um, so we'll play some of this dialogue here. Obviously, I'm prone to depression. A certain bleak attitude about the world. But I know I can handle it. Your kids, though. It's like when they're little and they get sick. You'd give anything in the world to trade places with them so they don't have to suffer. And then they think you're the cause of it. How are you the cause of it? It's in his blood, this miserable fucking existence. My rotten fucking putrid genes have infected my kid's soul. That's my gift to my son. I know this is difficult. But I'm very glad we're having this discussion. Really? Really? Because I got to be honest, I think it fucking sucks. What does? Therapy. This. I hate this fucking shit. It's this brilliant combination of rage and fear that only James Gandolfini, I'm convinced, can actually pull off. And I think it's maybe the only glimpse or one of the rare glimpses of Tony looking at his own depression. I don't even think I've heard Tony say in this whole series, I struggle with depression. Yeah. You're right. It is a confession of sorts. And I don't think it would have happened. I don't think he would have said that if Christopher hadn't said that thing about Dickie. Yeah, it's the most self-awareness that he'll have. Of course, it's painful. He's He ends it again, like blaming therapy. Yeah, right. <laughs> In the rest of this episode, Christopher is once again drinking again, you know, hanging out with the guys and they're like in the champagne room, the bang, I think. And they're all hanging out. And Christopher is telling a very genuine story about how much he loves being a dad and how when his daughter looks up at him, it's like just the greatest feeling in the world to be loved by a child. And Polly's mm -hmm. like, Jesus, Chrissy, like I'm going to give myself up for adoption. Chrissy's drunk and also guileless in the moment and he's like no my daughter's not adopted what are you talking about like he doesn't get the joke and everyone in the room is laughing at him Terrence Winter directed this and he slows down it's like a nightmare he slows down their laughter so that it's like ha ha like it's, it's like monstrous and that they're laughing in slow motion and Christopher runs out of the room and goes to Kind of the only person left from like the program, quote unquote, who's in his orbit. His He did have a sponsor at one point. He sort of disappeared. He goes to screenwriter JT Dolan's house. JT, hilariously slash tragically, he met Christopher in AA. I think JT has a gambling yeah. addiction. Christopher sort of blackmails him into writing Cleaver. 
he does he goes writes it or he does write it christopher having had this really sad experience in the champagne room he's very upset goes to jt's house and he's essentially telling jt like how much he hates his life and jt dolan is like looks at him and he says christopher you're in the mafia it's extremely direct and you know matt and i'll point this out in the book even melfi is never that direct with tony like gee i wonder why you're depressed i wonder why you have so much rage you know turned inward maybe it's because you're a violent killer for a profession like what the fuck of course and christopher shoots him out of nowhere like he just pops him in the head with a gun and he he dies and i did not expect that at all yeah i mean at one point in the series he beats him into ghostwriting this script so the literary agent in me was just suffering for him the whole time because not only was he not getting paid his life was on the line I just want to read a quick paragraph from the Soprano Sessions about this episode that I thought was good. And it really goes to the heart of Tell Me About Your Father and why we did this series on the Soprano Sessions and on Sopranos. They're talking about sort of like codes of fathers and sons and macho culture and the Sopranos. These codes are entwined with straight male identity. Even men who have never gotten within a thousand miles of a fistfight or a brothel have entertained urges like the ones that are the soprano lobsters stock and trade. Yet these impulses and the industries devoted to satiating them coexist with banal rituals of domestic life, wage slavery, and consumerist reflex. The episode's penultimate scene finds Tony and AJ both hungover and trying not to act too guilty. Joining the women of the house, Carmela and Meadow, for a family dinner around the kitchen table. To walk like a man in this world, it seems, is to burn so slowly that you won't notice it until your soul has turned black. Whoa. Okay, so the next episode is Kennedy and Heidi, season seven, episode six. We're just going to get to it. What happens, Erin? Chris and Tony are in a car accident, and Chrissy might live i mean he's choking on blood but tony decides not to call 911 and just puts his hand over chrissy's nose and helps him die real quick that's right the episode is called kennedy and heidi it's really interesting because we cut away from tony and christopher driving in this car and it's kind of tense, but it's also kind of normal. Like Christopher has just put on comfortably numb. They're talking about the Scorsese movie, The Departed, which is like the opening song on that soundtrack. And they make a point to tell us this. And then they cut away to these two random girls who are apparently like Kennedy and Heidi, like high school teens. And they're like, Kennedy, Heidi, nah, nah, nah. and uh, they cause this accident. Tony and Christopher are actually, like, for the first time in the show, just experiencing an accident. It's not caused by anything except Kennedy and Heidi's terrible driving. I think Christopher is sort of messing with the stereo, and Kennedy and Heidi are also not driving safely, and they it's not good, and they go off the side of the road, and you see these two teenage girls have this moment of, like, moral panic and confusion just like you see so many characters on the the sopranos have constantly where you know i think heidi says to kennedy turn around you know like 
And the other girl is like, we can't because I'm not supposed to be driving at night on my permit. Christopher is badly injured and essentially bleeding from his mouth. And Tony gets out of the car and goes around to the passenger side. And he can see that like a tree branch has like impaled. It's gone through the window and into the baby seat where Christopher's daughter would have been sitting. Um, and he, he sees that. And then Christopher says to him, you have to call a taxi for me because I'm high. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm never going to pass the drug test or the field sobriety test. Call me a taxi uh-huh. so I can get out of here. And Tony goes for his phone and starts to press the numbers and then hangs it up and puts his hand over Christopher's nose and suffocates him to death. And Tony just looks away. He looks up and away. It's almost Shakespearean, the scene. We've talked a lot about why Tony killed Christopher. And for me, my analysis of it is like Tony was like, I'm tired of the heroin addiction. This guy is never going to get clean. And he's a fuck up and I can't trust him. So I'm just going to put him out of his misery. And he's just a constant reminder of everybody failing him and being untrustworthy. His own kid being such a fuck up. Just like not being able to relate anymore. I cannot deal with this. A tree has just gone through the back of this car. Like, it's not like this guy is going to be a great father. You know, he's disposable. Totally. Totally. One could see like, oh, he's putting Chrissy out of his misery. But I think he's actually putting, Tony's putting himself out of his own misery. You know, this is Tony taking care of himself. And we'll talk about this with Matt and Alan because it's certainly a key scene in the entire series. Um, What's shocking is that Tony doesn't really have a reaction himself. Mm -mm. No. I mean, it's the same episode that we see him calling Carm, right, to tell her. And she she screams and immediately bursts into tears. It's like the most shocking thing. And yet there's been this avalanche of deaths within the last few years and close calls. Um, But it's also, I think she's genuinely in shock that it's a car accident. You don't see Tony crying, but you do see Tony process the death in a way that shows you how much he can't access his sadness by going to Las Vegas. And, quote, settling some of Chrissy's business, which actually turns into fucking, like, a hot woman that Christopher used to date in Vegas. And they yeah. do peyote together in the desert. Oh, yeah. And Tony, the episode ends with Tony screaming, I get it, into the, you know, sunrise. So even in processing Chrissy's death, like, there's still this, when we talk about women are disposable on this show, women are also property and I think that Tony over and over again has you know he started dating Valentina to fuck with Ralphie like he went and fucked Chrissy's you know I think she's actually like a like a a prostitute you know like just somebody that he would see when he was in Vegas and she's really hot and it's just like a little bit shocking because Tony just wants to like fuck the same girl that Christopher did I mean And he's in Vegas, which is like a big trigger because of his gambling issues. And it's just sickening. So we 
go into the next episode, which is the second coming. And this is a big episode as well. Tony pretty early on in the episode goes to see Melfi tells her about doing peyote and that he had this profound realization about the afterlife, which is that mothers are essentially bus drivers. And then he corrects himself and says, no, they are the bus. They're the vehicle that gets us here. And then they keep going, you know, and, and essentially telling Melfi, like, we're all alone in this world. Our mommies bring us here and then they leave us and they go, quote, on their own journey. And Melfi's actually legitimately like, wow. Like, I think at the end of it, she's like, that's very profound. You know, it kind of is. So Tony is existential on this episode and how we're all alone in life. And he has been worried about his son for a long time. And he comes home one day in the middle of the day to discover that AJ is trying to kill himself in the family swimming pool. Tony jumps in the pool and pulls him out of the pool. He's like, it's okay, baby. That's okay, baby. You're okay, baby. We did want to talk about what Tony says to AJ because this scene happened so close to him killing Christopher, who's his other son. So now I'm going to play a clip of Tony going into the back of the thing and he is like, let's just get it out there. You know, everybody's playing pool and Tony is like, let's address the 500 pound elephant in the room. My kid tried to kill himself. And all of these wise guys are standing around sort of trading notes about the struggles that their own children have had with depression. What did I lose this kid? What did I do wrong? Oh, come on. Don't blame yourself, Tate. A lot of pressure on kids today, Tom. Still to try to kill himself? It happens, Skip. Happened to your kids? Or yours? They're all different, Tom. My son, Patrick, I love him to death. But he could be a moody prick sometimes. Handler, you know, she was 15. She went through a rough patch. Jason, same thing. And he's got the hyperactivity to boot. My son, too. The older one, James. Try to kill himself? No, no. I, I, I don't know. He gets the blues. The important thing is, AJ's getting the help he needs. Whatever it is, I'm sure it's a chemical imbalance. It's me. It's all these toxins they were supposed to. It fucks with their brains. Between the mercury and fish alone, it's a wonder there ain't more kids jumping off bridges. Thanks, Polly. It's hilarious that mercury. <laughs> Polly's talking about like the mercury and toxins that kids are exposed to. And it's like, you guys literally dump asbestos into the, you know, back channels of New Jersey. Tension is mounting. You know, AJ is now, after he tries to kill himself, they get him professional help. He goes to be in like an in treatment program. For his depression, yes. Tony and Carmela are on, they've had this huge fight a couple episodes before on Walk Like a Man. Um, and I'm going to play a clip of Tony and Carmela. They're fighting about AJ. And Carmela is, she's tired of dealing with, with depression and the family. And Tony comes downstairs in the morning. He's feeling glum. And he tells Carmela 
you know, I just can't shake this feeling lately. I feel really depressed. And here's how that conversation goes. I'm depressed. I'm telling you, don't you start now. What does that mean? It means what it means. I have enough on my plate. I don't need you adding to it with your bullshit. Bullshit? It's an illness. And it's fucking hereditary. Thank you, I know. I am intimately acquainted with the Soprano curse. Your father, your uncle, your great-grandfather who drove the donkey cart off the road in Avellino, all of it. Well, you think it's a joke? Am I laughing? What are, what are you saying? He didn't get it from my family. That's all I'm gonna say. Your family don't even talk. Your father's so bottled up, it's a wonder he's even got a stomach left. Yeah, as opposed to yours. This my father was out front about what was bothering him. Right, with a bullet through your mother's beehive hairdo. Oh, I knew it. I was wondering how long it was gonna take for you to throw that up at me. You're amazing, you know that? In high school, you were the happy-go-lucky rascal, the comedian, the rapscallion. But all of that was bullshit, wasn't it? Oh, poor you. She got married under false pretenses. You've been playing the depression card until it is worn to shreds. And now you've got our son doing it. Card? Card? You heard me. Oh, so it's all me, huh? Our sonny boy. You had nothing to do with it. It wears you down, Tony. That's all I'm saying. Do you have any idea what it's like to spend day after day with somebody who is constantly complaining? Interesting that she says it wears you down. Like, Livia wore him down to a little nub. I never heard that before. We just replayed this scene right now. That's the trick of the show. Yeah, and Tony tells her, poor you, which is another right. Livia-ism. But yeah, it wears you down. Livia was undoubtedly depressed and borderline personality disorder. But it gets into kind of a, like, whose fault is it like, genetically between him and Carm? Whose dad was more right. fucked up? Well, Your dad doesn't ever, at least my dad was expressive, you know. But that's the thing about this argument that they're having. Nobody is talking about the nurture side of the equation and the way these kids were raised in a lie and how that can contribute to someone's depression. And also the genetic piece, because it's true. The depression was passed down by him to AJ, but what no one is acknowledging is that Tony's problem is so much bigger than depression and isn't genetic probably, hopefully, and that is that he's a sociopath. He's a cold-blooded murderer. <laughs> and the fact that Carmela can't wrap her head around that in this moment and call out his behavior, not his genetics, is amazing well, to me and immediately made me lose, you know, any respect for her that I had left. I also felt like her remark of like, what happened to the guy that I met when we were teenagers? Like, it's this incredibly childish and immature side of Carmela. Like, I guess you see her immaturity and her willingness to stay complicit in this marriage. But to say to Tony, like, what happened to that person? It's like, Carmela, really? Right. And have the circumstances not changed you? I guess she does go through her depressed states and, you know, when she's grieving and she's having these come to Jesus literally moments of self-awareness, but ugh, it's just gross. I know. Meanwhile, I don't think Melfi has been able to see Tony. Melfi, the trained psychologist and psychiatrist, has not been able to really see Tony as a sociopath either. 
which is kind of surprising, <laughs> but also not because it comes at the right time in the show, you know, the relative end. And she has seen, as we have, the lack of evolution and the baby steps. But ultimately, you know, she's afraid of him at this point. Yeah. And she goes to see her own therapist, who is played by Peter Bogdanovich, who appears throughout the whole series. He is kind of her sounding board about treating Tony. And he goes from being very disapproving at the beginning to being sort of titillated and excited by the tales of treating Tony Soprano and then kind of circles back around to being frustrated with with Melfi of like this guy is a sociopath like he's not going to to change and and he even tells her about a study that he had read recently that says that sociopaths not only can't be helped by quote traditional talk therapy but it actually makes them worse in the sense that they're becoming better liars and they have more language to justify their bad behavior or their sociopathic traits. Right. And so Mafia is intrigued by that. But it is interesting, like when Matt asked us, do you think she's a good therapist? Right. You know, like that there's people out there that think she wasn't. And I guess my only criticism of her is... The fact that she's let him sit on the couch for eight years without ever really speaking directly to him about being an organized crime. I guess in her defense, though, every time she tried to broach it, he would storm out of the office. Right. She did try to broach it. And in this season when, you know, she says, we never talk about your work in here. Mm -hmm. We never talk about your life as a criminal. And of course, she says it when he comes on to her in season five, right? And right. and I guess it's just that thing where she kind of got addicted to the idea of helping this person, which, again, is a dynamic that I think we can relate to, <laughs> you <What>? know, with <laughs> men in our lives in particular. Like, you, you want to save someone, literally, uh, and mother them. If they were never properly mothered, it's just an instinct that girls like us tend to have. That is right, Erin. We sure do. We really like a broken bird wing that we can mend, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> it goes on and on and on and on, as Journey will tell us later. Oh, man. Um, speaking of uh, cycles and addictions and the men we choose to date, Erin... It is revealed in this episode that Meadow is now dating the son of Patsy Parisi, who, to jog your memory, is the man who tells Gloria Trillo he's going to shoot her nipples off if she doesn't stop seeing Tony. He threatens Gloria Trillo's life. Meadow is dating that man's son. Oh, nice. Uh, he's a lawyer. He's in law school. And Patrick Parisi convinces Meadow to take up law too and leave med school and Tony and Karma are kind of surprised and I think vaguely disappointed that Meadow decides to go into law. And I think the subtext of the reality of the disappointment is that like when Meadow is telling them about it, she's like, you know, I want to help people like daddy. I've seen how my dad and his cohorts and Italian Americans have been mistreated by law enforcement. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I want to fight for them. And she's definitely not breaking the cycle. 
And you see her even slipping a bit. Like she is interested in law at the beginning, maybe of like season five, I think. Remember? Yeah, she wants to like save Harlem, you know? For like the Bronx Defenders or something, like as an intern, or she's working for like something similar to that. Like she seems like she might become like a public defender or something. And she, yeah. it's post 9 11, and she's really upset by the treatment of immigrants in America and the racist treatment of of Indian Americans. But what I also noticed, though, is that Meadow used to be in pre-med because I think so was her boyfriend at the time, Finn. So she does mention to Tony, you know, like, I'm paraphrasing, but you being in the hospital last year really scared the hell out of me. And that's why I've turned to law. Oh, interesting. I Um, forgot about that scene. I think that Finn was a dentist. I think he was going to dental school, if memory serves. But, you know, Meadow is not breaking the cycle and she is not falling far from the tree. And, you know, I relate to that a lot, Meadow. (laughs) It's hard to fly far from the family nest as far as, like, our professions go. Um, True. So... This takes us into Blue Comet, episode eight. It begins with a very tragic and upsetting scene, which is that tensions are mounting with New York, with Bill Leotardo and co. Tony, it should be said in the previous episode, does something called curb stomping a guy for kind of like hitting on Meadow. He finds out like one of these New York soldiers said something inappropriate to Meadow when she was out with Patrick Parisi in Little Italy and Tony goes wild on him. So in this beginning of the scene, Bobby is killed by New York. I don't know that it's like in retribution for the curb stomping, but this tension with New York has been building and building. Bobby is buying a train. He's obsessed with model trains and model train sets. It's very pure. He's a very Considering he's also a murderer, he's a very gentle character. And, you know, he's buying all of these train cars and the guy behind the counter is like asking what Bobby thinks like his son will think about these or like just assumes that Bobby's buying them to work on with his son. And he's like, oh, my son doesn't care about stuff like this. <laughs> um, it's sad. And uh, and he seems kind of sad when he's saying it. And then he gets it in like, the toy train section of this toy store. And... This is kind of when you start to see AJ's, like, for lack of a better word, third eye open or something. Like, he he kind of has come into post, you know, being hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital for depression, seeing a therapist. He's woken up. And it reminded me of Meadows' Columbia University roommate from season three, that he's sort of, like, just discovered or stopped to consider that the world is a very dark and brutal place. Well, they're at Bobby's, like the post-funeral reception. And of course, Bobby is effectively uh, AJ's uncle. Mm -hmm. And it's a very joyful scene, as sometimes these receptions are. Like, it doesn't feel like people are sad enough. He's definitely experiencing that they're at a table with Polly and Meadow and Patrick and some of the other guests and AJ just starts like yelling at them like this world is fucked you know and he might as well just join the army and like fight in Afghanistan 
and you start rambling about Bush. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Meadow also has a similar, I think she screams, this is bullshit. Um, at Jackie Jr.'s funeral when June is performing these maudlin Italian ballads when everyone's sort of watching and wonder and crying. It's similar to that, but AJ takes it to a whole other level. You people are fucked. You're living in a dream. You still sit here talking about the fucking Oscars? What rough beast slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? Huh? Yeats. AJ. Yeats? the world don't you see it so aj is ridiculed and stared at blankly in this moment it's like america what about it i mean this is still where people come to make it it's a beautiful idea and then what do they get bling come on for shit they don't need and can't afford you're all over the place i don't know what you're trying to say he's saying the fram is the sex with the ramistan approximately at the Paternoster. <laughs> we talked earlier about how prophetic The Sopranos was about Trump and mm -hmm. the future. And it was really eerie for me to watch this because AJ talking about Afghanistan while in real time, you know, I was watching it while Biden was disastrously trying to get us out of Afghanistan. But, you know, AJ is met with frozen smiles and nervous laughter and stares about what the fuck are you talking about? And He's very AJ about it and graceless in his delivery. And it's not the right time to tell people that they're full of shit. But prior to this, Tony's really pushing him to like snap out of his depression prior to him trying to kill himself. Tony's like, just go to the big and get a lap dance, you know, just go hang out with the Jasons, as Matt and Alan called them, you know, who are themselves like budding wise guys and beating up other kids. And AJ kind of starts by helping them beat up other kids and helping them hold down people while they pour sulfuric acid on them, like while he's sort of horrified. And then he slowly starts to become less engaged with these boys, but he does stand idly by while they attack a Somali kid and use racial slurs. And then you see him later in a, his therapy session just have a complete kind of existential meltdown and is like the world is so dark and people are so ugly and what is the point of any of this like it's such a sad sad world and the therapist like doesn't know really what to say and simultaneously up until the end AJ is really interested in like <laughs> the Israeli-Palestinian conflict He's thinking about joining the armed forces. He gets a girlfriend that he meets in psychiatric hospital who's an aspiring model. And they like do like research in his room on like the dial up internet about like Palestine. As much of a jackass as AJ is, you know, I went back and read some of the recaps of the show and I really was appalled at how much people hated AJ and how rough they were with his character. And he is a ding dong in a lot of ways but I also think that he is sort of an open wound and Tony and Carmela do not know how to help or how to stop the bleeding and I also think he's doing what a lot of kids in dysfunctional families do which is start telling the truth about what they're seeing around them whether or not it's this is bullshit or are you in the mafia or whatever but it's an acknowledgement of why are we sitting around acting like Bobby didn't die or like, you know, America is in a land of opportunity. People can't hear it. And 
I think that AJ is a very smart character from, in that sense, just in, in that specific sense. Yeah. Melfi, finally, after seven seasons, she is reading in bed. The way that it's shot is like kind of funny. It's like a horror movie. Like she's reading the study about the sociopaths that her own therapist has recommended to her. And it's like the shot zooms in on certain words and phrases. And she's realizing, oh my God, I have made Tony Soprano a better sociopath. There is no helping this man. And yeah. Tony goes in to see her. He's in the waiting room and he is reading a magazine and sees a recipe that he would like to try out at home. So he mm -hmm. rips it out of the magazine in the waiting room. And Melfi, you know, unbeknownst to Tony, is standing in her doorway watching him do this. And he goes into the session and it's tense and Melfi is angry with him. You sound like you're glad I'm taking it on the chin. Maybe you're projecting hostile feelings. This Christ, you sound like my fucking wife. Your fucking wife? You know what I mean. The Departures magazine out there. Did you give any thought at all to someone else who might want to read it before you tore out the entire page? You saw that, huh? Well, people tear shit out of your magazines all the time. They're a mess. I don't think I can help you. What are you talking about? I've only missed three appointments since we had that heart-to-heart. -heart. There's a doctor in Bloomfield, you could see. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay? Well, what the fuck is this? You're uh, firing me because I defaced your Departures magazine? And missing sessions, unfortunately, is part of my condition. What do you know about your condition? You miss appointments because you don't give a shit. Go ahead. Tell me again I sound like your wife. What the shoe fits. I have to say, this is embarrassing to say out loud, but I actually felt sorry for Tony in that moment. I did feel like Melfi of all the times to do it now when, like, you know, his son has just been hospitalized and... And I know the, mm -hmm. the point is like, we've just spent six plus episodes of our own show talking about how Tony's never going to make any progress in therapy. Do you want some names? Okay, listen, I'm going to tell you something and you're not going to like it, but we can say anything. In Go here, right? ahead. I'm, I'm choking this all up to female menopausal situations. You're not my gynecologist. Well, you don't need a gynecologist to know which way the wind blows. So wait a minute. You're telling me after all this time, you're cutting me loose just as my son got out of the hospital? I don't want to waste your time. I think what you're doing is immoral. Wow. What a scene. So good. I loved how imperfect, like, she was in this scene. She yells at him, but it's not this, like, big fireworks kind of breakup. It's all boils down to the recipe that he tore out of Departures magazine, very kind of life it's very stupid it reflects too that therapists are human beings we know that because we've seen glimpses of her life and her point of view throughout the series but therapy is messy sometimes you know i've talked a little bit about being angry with my therapist of 10 years on and off leaving and coming back getting pissy with her about like why hasn't my life changed i've been fucking coming here forever this yeah. is the most money i've ever spent on myself you forced me to move to park slope you said that would be a good idea you know like that kind of shit 
And I'm sure there were times when she kind of crossed those lines that therapists aren't supposed to by like sharing something about her life or projecting something onto me or transference, which is the whole dynamic between therapist and patient that really brings out that Oedipal shit or the more Freudian subconscious relationship stuff. And it was kind of funny. He slams the door behind him. She's just like, good. It's a great scene. But that's so true, Erin. Like I've been seeing my therapist for over 10 years and it it is messy. And there are sessions where I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. So anyways, that happened. It finally happened. And of course, it wasn't about the Departures magazine recipe, but that's what it boiled down to in the end. And uh, she's cutting him off at the pass because she knows exactly what he's going to say after eight years of treating him. And, you know, he really tries to manipulate her by telling her, you know, you're doing this to me when my son is struggling. And I just realized that she's the first woman to ever break up with him on the show. Ding, 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 ding. So we're going to hop on over to our next episode. We promise it's the last. We were supposed to wrap this up in one episode, but we just couldn't. There's another coming after this. We're going to focus purely on the finale. And here are the most we've heard so far from Matt Zeller Seitz and Alan Seppenwall. So join us on our next episode and see you over there shortly. You then tell me about your father and daddy issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, tell me about your father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, Go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.